Any health-related information on the following show provides general information only. Content presented on any show by any host or guest should not be substituted for a doctor's advice. Always consult your physician before beginning any new diet, exercise, or treatment program. Accelerated Health Radio and TV. I'm your host, Sarah Banta. I'm a health coach, natural supplement expert, and a busy mom of three teenagers. I believe that your body does want to and is capable of rebuilding and healing itself regardless of what chronic disease you may have. And I'm here for you to answer your questions and bring you innovative and cutting edge technology and health solutions to empower you and your ability to reach your optimal state of health. Today, my guest will be talking about insulin resistance, diabetes, and metabolic disease, and its effect on your overall mental and physical health. And I know more than anyone that you really need that strong physical foundation to work on your mental and spiritual growth. Whether it's overcoming anxiety and depression, losing weight, or detoxing your body in the proper way, and even increasing your level of frequency in life, you need a strong physical foundation of health in order to gain the willpower to make the bigger changes of life. If you're new to following me, I specialize in helping you get there. You can find all of my heart health articles, my cutting edge natural supplements, devices, and protocols at acceleratedhealthproducts.com. I dive into an array of health conditions, their causes and symptoms, and how to address them naturally. I've spent thousands of dollars and hours of my time biohacking different supplements, technologies, and diets that don't work so you don't have to. If you have any health issues that you need help with, you can email me directly through the website. I personally read everyone. Accelerated Health Products is the sponsor of the show, so as you support my website, I'm able to bring you more cutting-edge content and guests to the show. Today, as I mentioned before, we are going to be diving in to how to optimize your health through balancing insulin and blood sugar, and these results will lead to living a higher state of vibration or frequency as a result. So first, I wanted to talk about some frequency-enhanced supplements that can aid in the process of becoming your best self. First, the Accelerated Keto. This is the only keto supplement that not only kicks you into ketosis within 30 minutes and gets rid of those cravings for sugar and carbs, but it has additional fat-burning ingredients that help de-fat and cleanse your liver. Many of you may be suffering from fatty liver, and keto on its own helps, but this gets you the results quicker. Also, you'll feel the mental clarity that you've never felt before and the brain fog lifts. Your energy produced at the cellular level is 10 times more than when you're eating a high-carb diet, and your hormonal balance is improved. Personally, I can go all day fasting with amazing mental focus that also allows my body to heal while reducing the pain and inflammation. And as you feel better physically, you're able to mentally increase your frequency or vibration and become a better version of yourself. Accelerodyne iodine. Iodine is the wild card in supporting your immune system. It's not only anti-inflammatory, but it's also antibacterial and antiviral, antifungal, antimicrobial, antiseptic, and it goes on and on. It detoxifies the body 
and produces mental and physical energy. It also performs that unique function known as healthy apoptosis, which is the natural death of traumatized and unhealthy cells. And there is no pathogen resistant to iodine. It was actually used to protect people from the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic that killed over 30 million people. And all of these benefits are in addition to its role for the metabolism and the thyroid. And not only that, but iodine's the most important spiritual supplement as it relieves depression and brain fog and helps you connect to your higher self. I talk about increasing your frequency, meaning living at that higher level of awareness and spirituality, well, Acceleridine is the only iodine supplement that has scalar frequency embedded in it that detoxifies your pineal gland, which connects you to your higher self, clears that brain fog, and awakens you. And along with the Acceleridine is something called Nuke No More, and this is the best radiation poisoning treatment I've ever come across. It is also scalar charged, and it supports the removal of harmful ionizing radiation from nuclear fallout, smog, ionizing x-rays and commercial flights, as well as the non-ionizing radiation from smart meters, smartphones, and all the computers that we're zooming on every day. Additionally, it is able to help detox heavy metals from the brain as well. There's no supplement like this. And lastly, the accelerated scalar silver, which everybody needs right now. Not only does the accelerated scalar silver have an alkaline pH of 8.0 or above, it creates that environment that foreign pathogens may not be able to survive in. And it is also programmed with that bioinformational scalar technology to further help strengthen the immune system and devitalize those foreign pathogens like viruses. And like the Acceleridine and the Nuke No More, the scalar frequencies embedded in the silver lifts you to that higher state of being or that higher frequency. So now to the good stuff. Benjamin Bickman has earned his PhD in bioenergetics and was a postdoctoral fellow with the Duke National University of Singapore in metabolic disorders. Currently, he focuses as a scientist and associate professor at Brigham Young University in the beautiful Utah area and is, is focused on understanding the role of elevated insulin and regulating obesity and diabetes, including the relevance of ketones in mitochondrial function. He just authored a new book that couldn't be more relevant right now called Why We Get Sick. Ben, how are you today? Hey, Sarah, good morning. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat about all things uh, metabolism. The uh, only thing I know anything about. <laughs> well, I doubt that, but you know a lot. And like I said before the call, this is such a treat because I've been following you for so many years. And I actually have an article on my website called Insulin, the Game Changer, and it's based off of your research. Oh, uh, good for you. So anyways, this is something... Insulin resistance and metabolic disease, people just don't connect the dots. They hear about blood sugar, they hear about diabetes, but they don't connect it with insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity. So maybe we can start with just insulin resistance 101. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so insulin resistance really is the great mediator 
when it comes to connecting our lifestyle habits to disease, especially when we start talking about excessive weight like obesity or just overweight and the the cardiometabolic problems that we associate with that extra weight. So insulin resistance is a a coin and, and it has two sides. And one side of this coin that we call insulin resistance is that some of the cells in the body aren't responding to insulin the same way they used to. So there's this compromised sensitivity or responsiveness to insulin. That is the insulin resistance itself. But even still, that's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that blood insulin levels are chronically elevated, a condition that would be clinically called hyperinsulinemia. Now, unfortunately, both of those go totally overlooked. And because insulin itself is so often ignored when it comes to uh, analyzing the health of an individual, uh, someone, the, the tragedy is that someone could be living a life that's pushing their insulin levels ever higher and it is totally undetected. It's flying under the radar because they're simply not that focused. So again, insulin resistance is this situation where some of the body's cells aren't responding to insulin and at the same time, the body is swimming in insulin. There's multiples higher levels of insulin than there used to be in the blood. Yes, and people are focused on their blood sugar. And why don't we talk about that and the and the relevance to the insulin? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great uh, way to look at it. So when we look at cardiometabolic health, and I do mean kind of heart disease, blood pressure, diabetes risk, or progression towards diabetes, classically, we've only really viewed glucose. We look at glucose and the blood lipids. And the tragedy of having a glucose-centric paradigm is that we miss what's happening with insulin behind the scenes. And so it would look a little something like this, where over over the years of a person progressing towards diabetes or towards pre-diabetes and all the consequences, all the health problems that come with that, their insulin levels are getting steadily higher and higher. Every year, if they were actually measuring their insulin, it would be going up. Maybe it was six microunits, and the next year it was 15, then it's 20, then it's 22. So insulin continues to go higher, but it's enough, it's working well enough to keep the glucose in check because one of insulin's main jobs, but not its only job, is to help blood sugar levels or blood glucose stay normal. And it's working, it just takes a lot more insulin to do it than used to. But then eventually, there's this almost like a a, a switch that flips where we had high insulin and now we've reached a point and there's various inputs or various reasons for this, that even though the body is swimming in a sea of insulin, it can no longer keep the glucose in check and now the glucose starts to rise and then conventional medicine detects the problem. But of course, the issue that I take with this is that if we'd been looking at insulin, we could have detected the problem a decade or more before the glucose levels ever changed. So not only um, are we able to detect these kind of this early warning much, much sooner with a much higher fidelity by looking at insulin, but if we look at these problems as insulin-related problems rather than glucose-related problems, we also treat the problems better. And, you know, case in point with type 2 diabetes, now we finally detect the elevated glucose in the type 2 diabetic. And even though the insulin levels are already high, the, the conventional thinking would be, well, let's just push your insulin up even higher and give you insulin injections, and that'll lower your glucose. It does. It does lower the glucose. But by putting a type 2 diabetic on insulin, we make them fatter and sicker 
than they were before. Three times more likely to die from heart disease and twice as likely to die from cancer because these are not glucose problems. They are, to a degree, insulin problems. Okay, you touched on so many points right there. So number one, um, we should be looking at our insulin levels and not our blood sugar levels. So can someone go to the doctor and ask for that test? Yeah, yes. Thank heavens. Uh, in the U.S. especially, uh, that is something that can be done. And very often, a person's insurance will cover it, or there is going to be a very affordable way to do it, where you can, it maybe will cost you $30 out of pocket or something to get that added. Uh, so yes, ins fasting insulin should be looked at when someone wants to get a, a, a more a complete picture of their health. Now, if someone is has access to a previous blood test and they didn't have insulin on that, there is a surrogate that you can look at based on your blood lipids. Uh, and that would that's the triglyceride to HDL ratio. Mm -hmm. So if someone listening has access to their blood lipid panel um, of, of recently, take the triglyceride number, divide it by your HDL cholesterol number. And if that answer or the, the, the dividend from that is less than 1.5, that's a good sign that your body is insulin sensitive. So that's kind of a poor man's method um, of measuring insulin sensitivity if you can't get the fasting insulin itself. So let's go back to why we need insulin. What is the purpose of insulin? Because, I mean, we eat a certain amount of sugar or carbs during mm -hmm. the day, but there's only a certain amount that our body wants in its blood at a time. And it's such a small amount. If you could talk about that, which is shocking. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, at any moment, the, the blood, our entire, you know, five-ish liters of blood only wants to have just a couple teaspoons of, of you know, worth of, of glucose in it, just a few grams of glucose. And uh, that's something the body regulates uh, with exquisite um, finesse, because if your glucose levels are too high for too long, it, it can kill you. And so insulin really is a savior in that regard. When we eat a meal that has some starches and sugars, which is uh, basically the bulk of every meal um, someone's eating these days, um, beyond the US, it's not just here within our own country, we, we have this spike in blood glucose levels that cannot stay too high for too long, otherwise it becomes lethal. So insulin will be released from the pancreas in order to save the day. And basically it opens doors into cells, most especially muscle cells and fat cells, to push the glucose from the blood. And then once glucose starts to return to normal, insulin having done its job, clears away from, it clears itself out of the blood as well. Uh, and now, and I'll avoid the temptation to get into all the origin of insulin resistance, but that's, that's one of insulin's main jobs. But it's not its only job because while insulin stimulates glucose uptake from the blood into a few tissues like fat and muscle, it literally has an influence or an action on every single cell in the body, from, from, from every cell in our brain to every cell in our bones, from our lung cells to our liver cells, it doesn't matter. Every single cell in the body has insulin receptors. So a door that insulin can come and knock on, thereby telling the cell to do something. So in some, throughout the entire body, every cell included, the theme of insulin would be something like uh, insulin tells a cell what to do with energy. 
It will regulate some degree of nutrient uptake, pulling in fats or amino acids or glucose to some degree. And independent of regulating uptake, it will tell that cell what to do with those nutrients, those molecules, once they've pulled in, once they've been pulled into the cell. And also to a degree dictate the growth and the death, the life cycle of the cell itself. So insulin is fundamental to our health. We need it, absolutely. We would die without it. Uh, but we're dying because we have too much of it, and it, which is, you know, of course, part of insulin resistance. So if someone is flipping that switch from insulin resistance to diabetes, does their body stop producing the amount of insulin or are you being injected with an insulin medication on top of already being flooded with too much insulin and it just the level keeps getting higher and higher and higher and it's almost like a an alcoholic drowning in more alcohol is that correct yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, so the the latter um, condition that you had described is more often the case. We there is tricky language that is used when it when it comes to describing type two diabetes, and uh, we you know as a biomedical field will say or the physician with all the best intentions, uh, not knowing any better, will say, well, your glucose is going up because your insulin is insufficient or you don't have enough insulin to keep your glucose in control anymore. That's that's partly true although it's also partly um, uh, misleading because in almost every instance of type 2 diabetes, insulin is still several times higher than it used to be and where I would say it should be. In some instances, it will start to come down a little bit. In extremely rare instances, it comes down all the way to like the point of a type 1 diabetic, uh, but that is extremely uncommon. In almost every instance of type 2 diabetes, insulin, even if it started to come down a bit, is still significantly higher than it used to be. It's really a, a problem at the receiving end. The body, the muscle, the liver, other cells in the pancreas have become so resistant to insulin that now we have we not only can't clear the insulin, uh, the glucose as well into the muscle. The muscle just is deaf to insulin telling it to take in the glucose, but we also now have the liver and the liver becomes insulin resistant. And normally insulin would tell the liver to hold on to glucose as something called glycogen. It will tell the liver, hey, we have a lot of glucose. I need you to store it for later use. And, and now as the liver becomes insulin resistant, now the liver isn't listening anymore. Insulin's still trying to tell the liver to store the glucose, but the liver says, well, forget you, I'm now gonna start releasing this. I'm breaking down my glycogen, releasing the glucose, even though the body's already swimming in a sea of glucose, pushing the glucose ever higher, which in turn is pushing the insulin even higher. And we, at that point, are really developing a vicious cycle. And is that what's leading to fatty liver disease? Oh, that's very much a part of it. Yes. In fact, I just was highlighting uh, yesterday uh, in a live stream with a group that I do this with at insuliniq.com discussing the role of fructose. And as much as, uh, so if someone is worried about fatty liver or wants to improve um, the, 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 the fat within their liver, this was a randomized double blind clinical study just published within the last few months. They took people with known fatty liver disease and they didn't have, they didn't put them on low calorie diet or any severe dietary restrictions. They only had them cut their fructose. They had mm -hmm. them drop their fructose consumption and the liver immediately started to clear out. So if someone's worried about fatty liver disease, I would say you need to scrutinize the amount of fructose you're eating and the amount of alcohol. Now, even still insulin promotes the growth of fat within 
the liver. Um, so insulin very much has a role here. But when it comes to fructose and alcohol, they can make the liver fat without insulin being elevated. They just, those are two nutrients that can only be metabolized by the liver. And so if someone's taking too much, that's a very, that's a large energetic burden that the liver has to try to clear through and it ends up being a losing battle. Now, someone might be thinking, I don't eat a lot of fructose. If you're drinking fruit juice or you're drinking soda, uh, then you are getting a lot more than you think. Does that account for actual fruit? No, no. So the the uh, the amount of fructose you get in fruit is actually pretty modest. It's it's really what you've done to it when you've when you've turned it into a juice. And if someone's drinking a cup of apple juice, uh, in, including a small little child, you know, who's drinking an apple a cup of apple juice, and the parent, with the best of intentions, thinking they're they're doing their child a favor, that child is is basically drinking five or six apples. Um, because it's just the water and the fructose from the apple, which we can do easily. We could drink that all day. Someone could basically drink 20 apples worth of fructose, but no one, it would be extremely uncommon for someone to even eat two apples. You just eat one apple and you're done. You're content because of the fiber. So when we, that's the main problem with, with juice. You've taken the fiber away from that fructose, which not only fills you up, but it changes the way you digest that fructose in the first place. So I am, I am uh, very much an advocate of fruit. I think fruit can be part of a, a wonderful part of a healthy diet, but eat fruit, don't drink it. You know, you touched on something that is a huge passion of mine, and I know it is for you, is the chi children and the level of children, obesity and insulin mm -hmm. resistance that is just skyrocketing now. And I mean, my goodness, when we're all in quarantine, I'm sure it's even gotten worse. The level oh, yes. levels of mental disease and, and suicide and depression are all connected. I want to go back to when someone comes to you and says, okay, you just opened my eyes. I think I am insulin resistant or I've already flipped the switch and I'm type 2 diabetes, have type 2 diabetes, what do I do? I don't want to take insulin or I want to get off of my insulin. And I, as people know, am a, a proponent of a low-carb ketogenic diet. Can you talk about how that plays into this equation? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think that there's quite a simple answer at the end of this this equation. And uh, But... Before I elaborate on um, these simple concepts, I want to emphasize that just because the concept is simple doesn't mean the implementation is simple. When it comes to changing dietary habits, changing the food, when and what we eat, we are dealing with deep-seated habits, if not outright addictions. So I, I want anyone listening to, to know that I, I state this with, a, um, with that sort of humility and, and compassion. Now, having said all that, I do believe the concepts are simple and the evidence supports just how incredibly effective this is. I, to me, the first rule is control carbohydrates. If uh, Part of the main driver of insulin resistance is the chronically elevated insulin. It's this elevated insulin that's making the body become insulin resistant. And that's fundamental of a, of a biological principle that we see reflected across numerous aspects of cellular biology, which is when a cell is inundated with something, an incessant stimulus to a cell will result in a resistance to that stimulus. And so the cell is being inundated with insulin, it decides it's going to stop listening. And so it downgrades its sensitivity. Now, 
because the average person is eating starchy, sugary meals and they've been told to eat it six times a day, they eat that starchy, sugary meal and their insulin is going to be elevated for three or more hours. And right around the time insulin's coming down, they're eating again and they bump it back up and then they bump it back up. So the average individual is spending every waking moment and well into their sleeping moments in a state of elevated insulin. And, and so we've got to stop those insulin spikes by controlling carbohydrates. So I, my advice in that regard is focus on fruits and vegetables and do not get your carbohydrates from a bag or a box with a barcode. Get it in as natural a way as possible and fruits and vegetables are the best way to do that. And then I'll, I'll be a little more brief with the next ones. Prioritize protein. We need to make sure we're getting enough protein. It's kind of a magical macronutrient in that protein accelerates metabolic rate. And I don't even think it should be given a caloric value. Protein is not a fuel. Protein is a building block. Uh, it, it should not be given, I don't think at all, it should not be considered a calorie if someone is even inclined to count calories, which is a tedious um position. But nevertheless, prioritize protein, make sure you're getting enough. And that becomes all the more important the older we get, because the older we get, the more, uh, the less capable we become at turning dietary protein into muscle and bone protein and, and anywhere else. So the, uh, the older the individual, the more they need to be getting around one and a half grams of protein per kilogram of ideal body weight. And that protein, it's, it's, uh, not popular to say this, it needs to be animal uh, derived. Animal sourced proteins are superior to plant proteins by every conceivable metric. So make sure you're getting enough protein and get the right protein. And then, and then uh, don't fear fat. That's, that's the last one. Uh, fat is a natural ancestral macronutrient for humans. We need to eat fat. Some of the leading theories on human evolution are that we became humans with big brains because of our focus on fat as a fuel or as a source of calories. So don't fear fat and get that fat from animal sources and fruit sources like coconuts, avocados, and olives. And then I'll add one last one, which is um, don't fear fasting. Uh, it's okay to not eat every meal or every two or three hours. Um, engage in periods of time where you're simply taking a break from food. You will have significantly greater mental clarity. You will enjoy the discipline that you're exerting um, and just drink water or tea or something else and, and let your body get used to being a little uncomfortable. It will soon be not uncomfortable. You'll adapt to it. But those are moments where you know you're using your own fat for fuel. And that's what, that's what our fat cells are for. If someone's got fat that they can pinch and jiggle, that's just an energy bar or a powered an energy drink waiting to be used. Just let your body use the energy. It's like we have energy bars strapped on our bodies. And, and someone goes to the gym and they're sipping on an energy drink the whole time they're exercising. Yeah. It's crazy. You got that energy ready to be used. Just let your insulin come down and then you can start burning your own fat for fuel. And that's the better way. Become a fat burner, basically. You've touched again on so many points that I talk to my clients yeah. about, and I've got a lot of people that come to me and go, well, I can't do that. I can't eat. I can't not eat all day long. I'll be starving. And then I get them on the program and I tell them how to eat and I start them with the accelerated keto, which flips them into that ketosis right away. They all come back, whether they're a man of 250 pounds or a woman that's 120 pounds they all come back going, Sarah, I'm not hungry. What, is this okay? I, it's it's mm. now three o'clock. I haven't eaten. What's going on? Yeah. 
and I tell them they really need to get back in touch with their true hunger signals because eating six meals a day, we've lost that connection, that ancestral connection to our true hunger signals where our bodies will, our bodies will tell us when we're truly hungry. And we are meant to fast in every religion, in every, mm -hmm. um, you know, historical program, they, they all talk about fasting in some way or another. And I feel my absolute best when I'm fasting. I, my brain is on point, I can exercise on point, and I've got endless energy. And that's something that I really try to get people to. And it's so freeing when someone feels it. And, and just um, like you were touching on, even if someone doesn't follow a low-carb diet, just the fasting will help with insulin mm -hmm. resistance on its own. Obviously better with a low-carb diet, but you will get some gains. Um, protein. This is something that I'm huge on because I actually personally have a fat absorption um, breakdown issue, right? So mm -hmm. doing a traditional high fat ketogenic diet doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily work for me, but I focus on animal proteins and getting my fats from my animal proteins and within combination with protein. I'd like to really emphasize that with you because I know this is big for you as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I love that you're bringing that up. I, I do think that there has been, over the evolution of a, a low-carb, even to the point of ketogenic diet, some uh, carryover from its earliest versions. And, and by that, I mean um, epilepsy treatments. The earliest uh, clinical use of a ketogenic diet was to basically cure uh, epilepsy, where in most individuals, even now, that suffer from epileptic disorders, seizures, if they are in ketosis, they might not have a seizure at any point. In fact, the same goes with migraine headaches. There are studies from 100 years ago showing that people with frequent migraine attacks, if they adopted a low-carb ketogenic diet, as long as they were in ketosis, they wouldn't have a migraine. So now, back to my point, though. In these children that had such a high need for high ketones, they were told to restrict protein, and it was very, very high fat. And it worked to keep the ketones up at a very high level to ensure that the brain um, would not trigger um, an epileptic um, episode or, or a seizure. Uh, but in the average person, uh, th that, that fear of, or, or that, that being wary of protein is simply not justified. Uh, I, in fact, I strongly believe that what, uh, the best way to get fat is to get it with protein and vice versa. The best way to get protein is to get it with fat. Uh, and that's a trend that troubles me a little bit, this modern obsession with just pure protein with, you know, I'm just going to get two or three scoops of whey powder and just drink whey. That's not the way it's supposed to come. Uh, and we see that uh, in, in reality, in human physiology, where when you eat fat with that protein, you, you, you digest the protein better. Some of those digestive processes like bile acids facilitate, they, they improve the proteolytic enzymes in the small intestine that are working to degrade the protein to help us absorb as much of that protein as possible. And this is very likely why studies into human muscle growth find that fat and protein together have a significantly greater anabolic effect at the muscle than protein alone. So we, we, shouldn't, be, uh, we shouldn't be teasing them apart. Fat and protein are supposed to come together. And so your strategy on not just focusing on fat um, and not fearing it, but letting it come 
with the protein, which, which in nature always comes together. The best proteins, or indeed any protein, comes with fat. Now, someone will say, well, my pea protein doesn't have any fat. It doesn't because peas aren't meant to give protein. Uh, and that's a tangent. Don't get me started. I have very, very strong feelings trying to get um, protein from plants. It's, it's silly. I guess I'll just say that. In nature, the best proteins come with fat, and we should, we should enjoy it, accept it, and, and eat it the way nature or God intended. I couldn't agree with you more. I think next time um, we have you on, we should talk about plants and plants oh. and get, go on that. Don't get don't get me started. <laughs> it is something that I'm passionate about as well. Um, we do need to take a quick break. Um, so we're going to come back in a little bit and talk more about insulin and metabolic health with Ben Bigman. Welcome back to Accelerated Health Radio and TV. I'm your host, Sarah Banta, the owner of Accelerated Health Products. And today we have Ben Bickman talking all things insulin and blood sugar. Ben, let's switch over to um, the actual diseases that are caused by insulin resistance. And, you know, there's, it's as we are all fearing or we're in this environment of COVID and trying to stay healthy. Um, and people say, well, if you have diabetes, you are at high risk. Well, it's not necessarily just diabetes. It's what comes with diabetes and all of the metabolic diseases. So let's talk about that. Yes. In fact, to, to set the stage with COVID in mind, I know that's a very polarizing topic. I do think as a scientist, I just feel compelled to say humans, we don't have a great history of um, squelching or ridding the earth of viruses and so as much as there is a focus on, on totally eliminating this virus, I hate to break it to the audience, that simply won't happen. And, and thus, we really need to be prepared for when we do get infected, if, if we haven't already. And, and so we need to focus on shoring up our own immune defenses. And the immune system is very much related to the metabolic system. After all, these are two evolutionarily um, vital processes, the ability to defend the body from insults, the immune system, and the ability to ensure survival when we didn't have food, the metabolic system. And they work hand in hand. They work together. Um, and they, 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 they are two partners dancing in this, this, this ever never ending process of trying to achieve homeostasis. So the best evidence um, when it comes to uh, dictating who has a serious COVID infection uh, really points the finger at metabolic problems where pre-existing condition number one 
in determining whether someone will have a mild or a severe response to COVID is obesity. And then it's heart disease and then it's diabetes, type two diabetes. These are all metabolic problems. And so, so we need to make sure we have that, that shored up. And, and for example, heart disease, uh, that the, the main driver of heart disease is hypertension and insulin resistance to your, to your point, uh, insulin resistance is the main driver of hypertension. In fact, I would almost guarantee anyone listening who's been told they have hypertension or they've been monitoring their blood pressure on, on their own and see it going up. It's all, I would say it's almost certain a, a case of insulin resistance, where the elevated insulin that is in insulin resistance is forcing the kidneys to hold on to salt and water. And so the body is wanting to get rid of this excess, but it can't. The high insulin won't let the kidneys do their job. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, mental health, I know that's something that you and your audience focus on a great deal. We are, uh, the, the, the relationship between uh, metabolic health and brain function is so significant that Alzheimer's disease uh, is often considered a type three diabetes, which I actually don't love because it makes someone think that that's an entirely new form of the disease. It really is just insulin resistance of the brain. And from my own lab, we have just gotten accepted for publication. So it's not accepted yet. This literally just happened a week ago. It's not published yet. We published th these data that we have. We looked at brain samples from humans post-mortem and we had brain samples of humans that died without any evidence of Alzheimer's disease and people who died with Alzheimer's disease, known, confirmed Alzheimer's. And in the Alzheimer's brains, almost every gene that was involved in glucose metabolism was significantly down compared to the brains of the people without. But in contrast, genes involved in ketone metabolism, which is the other fuel that the brain can use, the brain its hybrid engine will burn one of those two fuels or both of them, glucose and ketones. The ketone related genes were unaffected in the Alzheimer's brain, which is just lending more and more evidence that with Alzheimer's and other brain disorders, it's really a matter of the brain starving. It can't get the glucose anymore, perhaps because of insulin resistance. All the more reason to give it something like ketones, which is a perfectly viable fuel for the brain. And then because this is a topic that I could go on in detail forever or at book length, um, I'll just maybe mention infertility as also being related to insulin resistance. Both the two main forms of infertility, polycystic ovary, ovary syndrome in women and erectile dysfunction in men are intimately related to insulin resistance. And, and I'll be very brief. In the case of polycystic ovary syndrome, it's the elevated insulin, the hyperinsulinemia in the woman relative to her body and what it needs to be that is inhibiting the ovaries' abilities to convert testosterone into estrogens. That's, it's a little known fact. All estrogens in every man and every woman were once testosterone. And then there's an enzyme in the ovaries or the testes that converts that testosterone into the estrogens. And of course, a woman needs to have a significant conversion, this estrogen spike, um, which is necessary for ovulation. Insulin prevents that estrogen spike, and so she doesn't ovulate. And in contrast, those ovaries are releasing more androgens or testosterone than they did before, which can cause some of the um, uncomfortable or awkward physical changes like the more coarse body hair or acne that a woman may have with PCOS. But then in the man with erectile dysfunction, that's not 
necessarily a problem of the elevated insulin, but rather a problem of the insulin resistance, where the blood vessels themselves are becoming insulin resistant and are no longer responding to insulin signal trying to tell the vessels to dilate or expand to in increase blood flow. So they, those vessels become insulin resistant, the blood vessels don't expand, they stay constricted, failing to increase blood flow and thus failing to develop an erection in the man. So we have both of these two most common forms of infertility related to insulin resistance. We have hypertension, which is the most common driver of heart disease. And then we have insulin resistance also playing a part in the failing of the brain, leading to um, cognitive decline as well. And indeed, many, many other instances um, that, that, but someone listening to this may think, Oh, Ben has, is surely, he's exaggerating. Uh, it's not possible that all these chronic diseases or what I call the plagues of prosperity are related to insulin resistance. Um, I would say, uh, listen to me now, believe me later. Uh, you know, look at the citations, which I, I think I have 700 citations that I rely on. I wouldn't say it if I didn't know there were actual published manuscripts to support the conclusions. Uh, it, it really, I'm not claiming insulin is the single driver of disease. No, no, undoubtedly there are multiple inputs here, but it is a common driver. And so when someone's opening their medicine cabinet and they're thinking, all right, I have to take my diabetes medication, I have to take my migraine medication, I have to take my infertility medication and my hypertension medication. What, what I hope happens now is that they look at that medicine cabinet and realize, wait a minute, every single one of these medications I'm on um, are trying to treat a problem, and a medication can never cure a problem. It's trying to treat a problem that is derivative of one common root cause, namely insulin resistance. Maybe I should try addressing the insulin resistance. And in so doing, as happens so often, they find that all those medications become increasingly irrelevant. Oh my goodness, yes. And not to mention all of the inflammation and the joint pain and everything else yep. that's going on in the brain and the body. Um, I personally had PCOS, as I mentioned before this show, and it was at a time where I thought I was quote unquote eating healthy, but I was eating just too many sugar sugars and carbs and I didn't Yeah, know but it was low fat. It was right? low fat. So you were you were doing what everyone tells you to do. Yes, yeah. exactly. I was eating the snack wells, cookies and, yes. <laughs> and healthy fruits, but no fat because I was fearing fat like everyone of my generation. As soon as I switched to a ketogenic diet and focused on the protein and a little more fats, my cycle became um, regular. I had no issues for, with fertility. And this is something that I've heard from the younger generation, that erectile dysfunction is not a disease of, of men getting older. It is no. now being found in the 20s and 30s, and that's probably because insulin resistance is now being found in the ages that are younger and not just, as, not just in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Yes. Yes, in fact, there is a manuscript by some physicians and scientists, and the title of it is something like, is erectile dysfunction the earliest symptom or manifestation of insulin resistance? Mm -hmm. So it's possible that this 20-year-old um, is, is experiencing this, suffering from this, and it, it really is very likely to be a result of poor metabolic health. Yeah. Well, we only have a couple more minutes left. I can't believe it's gone by this fast, but I wanted you to address the notion that as we age, we're just destined to have slower metabolism and how the metabolism relates to insulin and also how fasting and a ketogenic diet is not actually slowing down your metabolism. 
No, no. In fact, indeed, uh, a, a short-term fast, and by that I mean like two to three days, which is I would consider not short-term, um, but in the grand scheme of fasting research, it, it is. But someone fasts for, say, 48 hours, they actually have an increase in their metabolic rate because their hormone adrenaline starts to climb a little bit, and that drives metabolic rate. So you actually have an acceleration of metabolic rate with fasting. Now, if it were long, long-term, yeah, you know, where people could fast for a week or so, then undoubtedly it would start to slow. But in this short-term window of, say, around 48 hours, metabolic rate actually accelerates. Importantly, and thematic of how I defined insulin earlier, which is insulin tells cells what to do with energy, insulin slows metabolic rate. Uh, a friend and colleague of mine, David Ludwig at Harvard, he published a paper finding that when someone ate a meal that spiked their insulin, their metabolic rate slowed by about 100 calories per day as it would be continued. In contrast, if someone ate a meal that kept insulin low, like a low-carbohydrate meal, in, uh, their metabolic rate accelerated by about 200 calories per day. And so we had this 300-calorie swing um, that, would, that would really separate and make the difference between an insulin-spiking meal on the low end and an, an insulin uh, keeping in, uh, an insulin unaffecting meal, I guess, uh, accelerating the metabolic rate up to the high end. So uh, as someone is aging and they're worried about metabolic rate, I would say you can influence it and it doesn't have to just be through exercise. Um, fasting and keeping insulin low, it, that's a wonderful way to accelerate metabolic rate. But I would also point the listener to one study that looked at metabolic rate and weight gain in older people, and it's called the Baltimore Longitudinal Study. And what's so interesting about that study is they found that it wasn't metabolic rate that predicted weight gain changes or weight loss, it was the fuel they were burning. Mm -hmm. uh, and they looked at glucose burning, whether the person was predominantly relying on blood glucose or blood fat, or you know, fat burning or sugar burning, I like to say. And the people who were sugar burners gained the most weight. The people that were fat burners gained the least amount of weight. And of course, the next thing is, the question would be, well, what dictates which fuel I'm using? Once again, we point the finger at insulin. If insulin is elevated, the body is obligatorily burning sugars or blood glucose. If insulin is low, the body shifts, and now its primary fuel is fat. So the key to long-term weight maintenance, it's not so much metabolic rate, although that certainly matters, but this evidence suggests that it's really more a matter of what fuel are you, are you burning. And to put a spin on an old adage, you burn what you eat. And if you're eating starches and sugars, well, then that's what you're burning. If you cut the starches and sugars and you're focusing on fat as a fuel, of course, with protein, then you're a fat burner. And that appears to be the best way to stay lean or get lean. Awesome. I mean, you're speaking to the choir. I loved having you on, Ben. You're such a treat. And I hope you'll come back on again because we could go on oh, and for on. Sure. But before we go, can you tell everybody about your new book and where they can find you? Yeah, yeah. Thanks again for this uh, opportunity. Uh, the book is called Why We Get Sick, and it's a bit of a bold title, I know, but it just sort of lays out the premise that insulin resistance matters, what it is, where it comes from, and what to do about it. And you can buy that anywhere books are sold. And um, I'm active on a website called gethealth.com where I create um, scientific content, and people can also find... Um, a low-carb meal replacement shake that I worked with um, some others to develop. So higher fat, higher protein, um, you can find it there. And I'm fairly active on social media. 
um, but not as much because I have a lot of other things to get to in life, <laughs> including a busy little family. But I'm mostly active on Instagram. I find that just to be the most pleasant social media outlet these days. And people can find me there at Ben Bickman, PhD. And it's, it's just me sharing little tidbits of science. In fact, I'm going to do a little video today about fat cells just to try to stay involved in social media to some degree. So those are the best ways to find me. Amazing. I love following you and listening to you because you truly bring the geek out of me. You're so <laughs> detailed and I find myself listening to your um, your your podcast and such uh, over and over again because the science behind it all is so detailed and so great. So Thanks again, and thank you, thank everybody, you. for joining us today. If I can help you with your health issues, you can contact me, Sarah Banta, at Sarah at AcceleratedHealthProducts.com. I'm happy to put together a personalized protocol for you. I know it's sometimes hard to wear, it's hard to know where to start. And you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram under Accelerated Health Products and my YouTube channel under Accelerated Health Radio. You can also find this episode and all my episodes on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, Pandora, and all of the podcast platforms. I now do Accelerated Health Bites where I I do short informational videos about health topics and solutions that you ask me about. So if you have a condition or a topic you want me to address, let me know. And if you like what you heard today, please hit the subscribe button and share a comment or a review and share with a few friends who may need my help. As you share my channel, it helps me help more people like you and bring more cutting edge guests to the show like Ben today. Join us next week at 8 a.m. Pacific time and you can find the supplements I mentioned at the beginning and my informational videos at my website, AcceleratedHealthProducts.com. You can also use coupon W4HC20 for 20% off site-wide. Thanks again for joining us here on Accelerated Health Radio and TV and have a great week. Thanks, Ben. Thank you.